Welcome to the next Breakfast with Jesus. Uh, this is, there's been a hiatus since the last ones, and that's because of the David Bentley Hart conference. During that conference, David mentioned a phrase um, uh, which intrigued quite a few of us. And the phrase was the circle of glory. So I thought I would investigate that phrase and do a, do, it was so exciting what I found out uh, that I, I decided to do a short breakfast with Jesus on it. It's quite a nice segue into the book of Ezekiel, which I'll return to uh, for the next Breakfast with Jesus talks, because that's about glory. So this idea of glory is, is pretty significant. Uh, when we heard the phrase, a few of us were really quite intrigued by it. It, it, it was a phrase clearly to describe the Trinity. Um, but where did it come from? So I asked David and, um, and got the answers. Um, it's actually a phrase used by Gregory of Nyssa. Um, and it's a phrase, uh, whilst it describes the Trinity, it's actually uh, from an article on the Holy Spirit. The article is called um, Against the Followers of Macedonius. Um, so that, that's what this talks about. It's about what the phrase circle of glory meant. What did Gregory mean by it? Um, and I'm basing it almost entirely on that article. Well, first of all, who was Macedonius? Clearly he was uh, an, some kind of opponent uh, of Gregory's. He was an eminent uh, member of the church, a semi-Aryan church doctor. So he was in the camp that tended to take a diminished view of the Trinity. Was The article was probably written about 380 AD. Um, uh, Macedonius had been banished, but nonetheless, um, he continued to build his own network. He was still very influential. Um, and the heart of Macedonius' uh, heresy was that he considered the Holy Spirit to be a force or an energy, not a co-equal person, the third person of the Trinity. Um, he clearly was not on his own. Um, and uh, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit was obviously still somewhat, as it were, undeveloped in the Trinitarian framework that came out of Nicaea. Um, and as one writer said, um, a modern writer, the apprehension of the idea of the Spirit had been so little permeated as yet by the Christian consciousness of the unity of God that Gregory of Nazianzus could still say in 380. So this modern writer says, well, um, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit was embryonic, not well developed, not well fleshed out. Um, and as a result, and he, he proves that by quoting Gregory of Nazianzus, the, uh, 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 another one of the Cappadocian fathers. Um, this is what Gregory said. Some of our theologians consider the Holy Spirit to be a certain mode of the divine energy. That's clearly Macedonius. Others see the Holy Spirit as a creation of God. Well, clearly not divine, subordinate. Um, others as God himself, which would be um, uh, the, what became the Orthodox doctrine. But others say they do not know which opinion they ought to accept out of reverence for the scriptures, which have not clearly explained this point. 
So what we can see is that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the latter part of the 4th century was at risk. It was undeveloped. This is quite interesting um, because I think in some ways uh, we can't be condescending about that. I think our understanding of the Holy Spirit, um, if pushed, may also be at risk. I, mean, I think some people implicitly probably we feel the Holy Spirit is like a force rather than a, a person of the Trinity. Um, I think what was going on was that the, 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 the Nicene movement had confronted the issue of the, of the, in the Arian controversy that was the subordination of the son. How could God be a human being? How could God become man? Um, surely um, Jesus, uh, the historical Jesus, and, and therefore the Christ was somewhat of a subordination or declension from the Godhead. Now the Nicene uh, doctrine led by the Cappadocian fathers had I think won that battle and, and, and the Nicene Creed captures that, the equality of the Son and the Father. But if you think about it, having established that natural equality between Son and Father, the next issue is, well, what's the nature of the Spirit? Uh, father and Son is, establishes the, person, the personhood of God as archetypal for sure. But where does spirit fit in? It's not like you've got father, son and daughter or something. I mean, it doesn't continue the family image. Um, and so it's sort of understandable that uh, people could say, well, it's, it's, it's like Macedonius, it's a, the Holy Spirit is a force. Um, so that's the context within which Gregory is now defending the, the divinity of the Holy Spirit and the personhood of the Holy Spirit. But he does not do this independently rather he develops his argument with a um, sophisticated uh, model of the trinity which climaxes in this circle of glory phrase so let's look at it what is the holy spirit's role in the circle of glory what is the circle of glory and and how does the holy spirit complete the circle of glory that is that is where um He's going. He begins the article with a sustained defence of the divinity of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to repeat that here. But then he moves from defence to explanation. That's the rich part. Um, and uh, he, his, his views uh, significantly move beyond the Holy Spirit. He cannot talk about the Trinity and the Holy Spirit without talking about creation and, and our participation in the Godhead. And rather extraordinarily, the climax of the article is that our very faith is no more than a participation in the circle of glory, in the faith that occurs within the circle of glory. Um, I must say that Gregory's theological vision is something I've just not encountered quite anywhere else. It's extremely uh, faith-building uh, because it's not just visionary, but he locates it very powerfully, not just in logic, but in our own experience. So here goes. The first thing, point he really makes, is, and he makes this in response to a crit criticism of Macedonius, is that the Holy Spirit was intrinsically involved in creation. Macedonius uh, says at one stage that uh, the Holy Spirit can't be divine because the scriptures do not position the Holy Spirit in the work of creation. And Gregory denies this. Um, 
Gregory beautifully calls creation the world-building efficiency of God. It's a wonderful phrase. Um, and, and he says the work of the Godhead is complementary in creation. It's complementary. You, you can't, it's not making up, you know, one person of the Trinity is not making up for a defect in, in the other persons of the Trinity. So the Holy Spirit has no defect. Uh, but his, his wonderful phrase is that in, in trying to be, begin, I think, to identify the different functions of the Godhead um, implied in creation, uh, and that he has this wonderful sentence, the fountain of the power of creation is the Father. So the Father is the source, the fountain. And the power of the Father is the Son. The power of the Father is evidenced in the Son, made manifest in the Son. And the spirit of that power is the Holy Spirit. So the, the sort of inner driving energy of the power of the Son is the Holy Spirit. He doesn't stop there. He, he then includes creation. He says, and creation and entirely in all its visible and spiritual extent is the finished work of that divine power. This is a power culminating in a work and the work is, is creation. So he, he sees creation as a continuum, not, not as a, uh, a separation uh, from the Godhead, but as a continuum of the Father touched by the Spirit. Um, rather beautifully and I think very thought-provokingly, he then is able to redefine creation, not as a material objects, not as chemistry and physics, um, but as his faith, this is his, his wonderful phrase, we should then be justified in calling all of creation as number one, a movement of will, the will of the Father, an impulse of design shaped by the Son and a transmission of power enabled by the Holy Spirit, beginning from the Father, advancing through the Son and completed in the Spirit. Um, that phrase bears much thinking about the three participles, beginning, advancing and completing. And it's the spirit that completes. So with that rather breathtaking set of brushstrokes on creation, put positioning, he positions the Holy Spirit in, in the creation. He then moves on and looks at um, two very important symbols in scripture, um, which point uh, directly to the work of the Holy Spirit. And in particular, he now moves on to what's the relation between the Spirit and the Son. And he does this by looking at the anointing. So the, the metaphor he looks at, the symbol he looks at, is the anointing oil, the unction by which a king was created. So he says, what, what is the oil symbolising? Um, and we know that the oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. He says it is the oil is a symbol of kingship. It's a symbol of kingship. So the son is the king, um, but he is anointed, uh, uh, and and that anointing makes him uh, king of all things that exists. So the unction metaphor, he, he pursues that, and, and he's, he's now somewhat separated the idea of king from kingship. Um, 
I think you know, if you wanted to pursue it, uh, in my mind, it went to King David. You know, he was David before he became king. And when he was made king by Samuel, he was anointed. So the package of the king was not David in himself. It was David with oil poured over him. And and that happened privately, apparently. Um, it was not a public coronation. It was a private thing that now made David king. So you had, uh, uh, you needed David plus kingship for him to be king. If we came across David when he was a shepherd boy in the wilderness, he wasn't yet king. So this is, uh, this is where the idea of kingship is important. And that's what he says the Holy Spirit um, sort of bequeathed um, on Jesus. He then pursues the metaphor and he says, uh, well, oil... If you pour oil on skin, there is, uh, there's no interval of separation. That's his word. Now, we know what that's like. We know that um, oil permeates the skin. And so, therefore, you actually can't touch the skin. And he sees the oil is covering the whole body. You can't touch the skin anywhere without touching the spirit at the same time. Um, and, and what he then makes of this, he says, whoever is to touch the sun by faith. In other words, I'm touching Jesus no longer as a historical figure. That would be like touching David <laughs> before he became, was anointed. Now I touch him and I say, he's the Christ, the son of the living God. I've actually been enabled by the spirit. I've touched the oil. Uh, that's how he develops it. And it, he said, we, we first encounter the oil in the act of touching and in Gregory's words, therefore, belief in the lordship of the Son arises in those who entertain it, us human beings, by means of the Holy Spirit. And on all sides, the Spirit is met by those who by faith approach the Son. So the Spirit is the arbiter, the sharer of the knowledge of the kingship of the Son in the world. And so he's aligning the spirit with our faith. Our act of faith is, in fact, a spirit-enabled activity. And that becomes crucial as he develops that in, in, in detail later on in the article. So that's the first symbol, oil. The second symbol is baptism. He moves to baptism and he says, well, baptism is now another symbol, a water symbol, uh, that pictures our participation in life. Uh, he defines salvation not as the forgiveness of sins. His mind just simply does not go to a forensic framework. He's not there. He goes to a life framework. For him, and these are his words, salvation is participation in life that is no longer subject to death. And this is nothing other than the life of God. This is his picture of salvation. Um, not that he doesn't have a view of sin, not that he doesn't have a view of repentance and forgiveness, but they're subordinate. They're subordinate. They're means to an end. And the end of salvation is participation in life. Well, he then says, but it, it, it isn't the water um, that secures our participation. It's actually our faith and, uh, in, in baptism. That's Okay, I think we'd be we'd all agree with that. But he, he then moves on and, and he 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 powerfully reframes faith. 
reframes faith in a way that uh, I've certainly never, personally, I've never seen as well explained as, as he does in what follows. He sees faith not as an independent human quality that we have that establishes our response to God. He sees all of faith as beginning with and originating in the Godhead itself. I didn't get that. Could you try again? Oops. I think that's Siri talking to me. <laughs> Apologies. Forget that. Uh, let's, let's continue on. He, his mind works on the metaphor of water now as the source of life. So he now pursues the metaphor of water and baptism um, as he had pursued the um, oil metaphor. Um, and he develops the idea that the Father is the wellspring of the water. So now water becomes for him life. That's what symbol of. So the Father is the wellspring of the water. That life is then channeled through the river of the Son. This is not actually his metaphor. I'm, I'm adding a metaphor here to make clear his thinking. And it's made operable for us to swim in by the Holy Spirit. So that would be a extended version of, of, of this metaphor. And he, he, his phrase, his words about it, Gregory's words are that this life of God, um, after starting from that source as from a spring pouring life abundantly, this is the Father, through the only begotten, who is the true life, by the operation of the Spirit. So he is seeing life as a vast flood, a vast river that originates, it's the life of God, by the way, originating in God, channeled out and uh, by the Son and made operable for us to participate in by the Spirit. So he's saying that our salvation is enabled by the Holy Spirit who generates faith. And remember, salvation is participation. You may as well say our participation is enabled by the Spirit who generates faith. And we are participating in the life flow of God. Um, he calls it, he calls that life, uh, that higher and precious life in which brute creation has no part. He's not talking about just sensate life. He's talking about spiritual life. So he goes further and he, he builds, his mind builds, Gregory's mind builds. He says that this faith experience that we have, which I've been used to, I suppose, attaching that faith to conversion as a human response to the gospel, um, he doesn't deny that, but he's sort of, he's now lifting his vision to a, to a higher transcendent stream. And he says that this faith is including us in the glory experience of the Trinity. The glory experience of the, of the Trinity. So now's where you kind of got to get your seatbelts on <laughs> to follow his thinking. Um, so he's saying that our approach to God, our knowledge of God, our worship of God is not autonomous, not, not a human, but it's a participation in a divine circle of knowing and worship. And this divine circle of knowing and worship exists apart from and before creation within the persons of the Godhead. It is not a declension. It's not a 
secondary attribute of God that becomes necessary to mediate his relationship with creation. Um, now, he, in pursuing this, he says, well, our faith cannot be autonomous. We, we, by cognitive effort, we cannot come to a knowledge of God. Um, the limits of human can, cognition uh, demonstrate this. He says, you know, that beautiful phrase, every man's cognitive ability, every human's cognitive ability falls below the grandeur of the spirit. Uh, we humans, you know, we're transient. We're, you know, we live short lives. Um, uh, we're like the flower fading. Um, and and we will, our own cognition, therefore, our own sensory input, therefore, can't take us beyond this temporary, spatio-temporal view of things, he's saying. He, his words are, we will not know with certainty what we were before our birth, nor into what we will be changed. Our souls will therefore be ignorant of their particular destiny as long as we tarry in the flesh. So to know what it is to be ourselves and human, we, we need more than at the sensate input of our 70 years experience. And it would make no difference if we read history and read about everybody else's 70 years of experience. History and tradition doesn't make up for it. Uh, what makes up for it is the Holy Spirit who takes that base and extends it before and after, before in the intention that has led to this life on earth and after to the destiny to which this life on earth is pointing. It's a beautiful but um, I think to begin to continue to grasp what he's talking about and what he will talk about in the climaxing phrase, circle of glory, which occurs at the end of the article, is what does this word glory mean? Um, it's a word we use rather sloppily. I'm going to return to it more in the Ezekiel talks. I'm aiming to interview um, a guy who's written very powerfully on it called David Bradshaw. But for the moment... What do we think in this article, Gregory, is meaning by the word glory? Well, I think it helps us to say that think of glory as knowing and not just any knowing that's um, objective and casual, but knowing that leads to loving. I know the inside of something. Um, so it, it really is implying the intimacy, intimacy of knowing and, and thus being included in an other um, so this elevates in, in, in glory, glorying and glorifying beyond praising. Um, I think we can use the concept of praise or even worship in our experience. We, we certainly use that word frequently, but, but there's an implication it's from an inferior to a superior. You know, I, the inferior, am praising God who is superior. And the glorifying, the glorifying that uh, Gregory is talking about is not like that because it exists between the persons of the Godhead. They glorify each other. So there's no inferior to superior. There's a recognition um, and there is love and there is faith. You could even put praise back in there if you want to, as long as it's like to like, which is another phrase that's going to come in with a circle of glory. It's not inferior to superior. It's like to like. And that's what we're participating in. Quite 
<laughs> really extraordinary. Um, so uh, this clearly reframes our praise and our worship, and it has in my mind, um, and indeed our faith. It means that these aren't just the natural inferior to superior. That's certainly true of it because we are not God and we are limited and we're sinful and we're subject. Yeah, he doesn't deny any of that. But at another level, we are actually participating. The real grace is that we are participating in the divine circle of glory and it's the spirit that's enabling that participation. Well, moves on. It doesn't stop there. This participation is intended by God. It is not deferential, nor is it reactive, nor is it secondary. It's in the very nature of God. He assumes uh, that the power of God, and this is where his conception of God subtly but very significantly differs from a more traditional, reformed, evangelical um, conception of God. Uh, he says uh, that the power of God is by nature generous and moves outward. So this is the circle image. It's not a line. You know, I think in, if you wanted to simplify the geometry behind the theology, I think the geometry of a lot of Christianity is a one-way line, you know, up and going down, <laughs> from God down. This is not his image. His image is circle and it's not a casual image, it's central which means that it is within the Godhead. Um, so for, God, for Gregory, God's attributes expand outwards. Look, here's how he described, let me use his words, and, and think in your mind of a widening spiral. It isn't just a circle anymore, but a circle with a energy and trajectory that's naturally outwards. He certainly, in, in this particular passage I'm about to quote, he begins with eternal attributes like God is imperishable. Yeah, and that's kind of like the Westminster Confession. Goodness and power, fine, he's got those things, but he doesn't stop there. After three or four of those attributes, he moves on to specify the, the, the attributes not as self-enclosed, but as self-giving in their very nature. He says, the Godhead has the capacity to give all good things. That's his phrase. And above them all, life itself. So long before creation, the nature of God is to, to give life, give all good things. And by being everywhere, I'm continuing in Gregory's words, being present in each, filling the earth, residing in the heavens, shed abroad upon supernatural power. So this expansion is limitless to the visible and the invisible world. Filling all things according to the deserts of each, whilst himself remaining full. So God's filling, God's pouring out, and like our pouring out, does not empty himself. One thinks of John chapter 1. Um, he doesn't empty himself, remains full. It's, it's perpetual bubbling over of abundance. Um, and this is... This is the picture he has of the circle of glory and of the giving of life, which, of course, began right back when, you know, several pages back in the article, he was talking about baptism. He moves on and the circle, the, the, uh, this is implied, this energy that is outward is also a returning energy. That's what a circle does. 
It comes back on itself. That's what a spiral does. It goes out and comes back. It's an elliptical force that's powerful, limitless, but without having boundaries, because it ever expands, it moves back onto itself. And that is the, the, the as it were, the returning movement is what we participate in. That's, that's really where his mind goes. Um, so the divine outwards movement is a divine returning movement. And this happens uh, in the Godhead from the very beginning. The return is not something that's um, post-creation. The returning is pre-creation. Uh, so in God, the God is God's experience is both a giving and a receiving experience, a telling the story and a reading the story experience. All this is within the Trinity prior to creation in the mind of Gregory. Um, so the, another word might be the reflex. The reflex occurs within the Trinity, and and this is the Godhead's experience of life. Um, God reads his own story. You know, God rejoices in his own story. God gives, God receives. Within the Godhead, God, strange words, has faith in himself. The Son has faith in the Father. Um, uh, that's the mutuality of their covenantal relationship. So that's what the Holy Spirit then makes available to human beings. The divine recognition um, of the Father by the Son. Uh, the affirmation of the Son by the Father. It's the returns, uh, the loved returns within the Godhead uh, that the Holy Spirit is coordinating and making available to us. It's the Spirit speaking. You could think of Jesus as baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, which is, which is expedited by the Spirit descending like a dove. So, Within his model of the, uh, of the Trinity in the circle, it, he's seeing the Holy Spirit as the returning movement um, of God. Uh, hard to understand, but I think we can understand it from our experience, and I've alluded to this before. Uh, our experience of creativity. Now, uh, our creativity, so let's say I'm painting a picture, right? Um, from within me, from within the fount within me, there is an expression out of an idea um, which gets physical manifestation in a brush stroke. Okay, so that movement is out. We say, well, that's the creative process. And if I'm a really good artist, I do really good brush strokes. Yeah, not really. It doesn't finish there. That's not the really complete cycle. The complete cycle is I look at the brush stroke and I rejoice in it, I evaluate it. And as a result of that evaluation, I get a reflex of joy that then uh, is the impulse for the second brushstroke. That's a great phrase. All art is a recovery from the first line. This is what's cognitively going on in what I call the, I call this the design dynamic. Um, and it's something that, you know, I've looked at a lot in my life. It's actually a flowing, it's actually a circle. It's actually a circle flowing out onto the canvas, joy back. And it's the Holy Spirit that is the joy, the, the joy, the reflex back. That, that, that turns this into a circle. So that would, would, I find that helpful anyway. And what the Holy Spirit is communicating to creation, now he's in, in involving creation in, in, the, in this work, um, 
he says, is nothing less than the inner life of God. This is what the Holy Spirit is making available to us. He says of the Spirit, uh, quoting 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he ever, the Spirit who, who searches the deep things of God. We are not the, the sharing, the reflex is not a reflex of outer attributes of God. It's not a distant view of the knowledge of God. It's the, it's the inner life of God. Nothing less than that. Um, and, and it is this, um, I suppose, you know, communication function that, that now in, in enables our participation in the divine circle of glory, which the Holy Spirit expedites. And, and then he moves into, that's when you then come to the last page of the article, which he climaxes with the circle of glory um, sentence. And, and as he's doing that, he, he moves heavily to John's gospel and John 17, when he, he sees the mutual glorifying that is swirling around between Father, Son and Spirit, speaking to each other, and they're glorifying each other. Um, he quotes John 17, 4, I've Jesus in his prayer, high priestly prayer says to the Father, I've glorified you on the earth. I've made you manifest on the earth. And the prayer then is, now glorify me. Father, glorify me with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Um, and the divine voice answers, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So, he then... Um, Oops, sorry about that, that's our dog. <laughs> uh, he communicates from these passages. Um, so he climaxes them by famously declaring, you see the revolving circle of glory moving from like to like. That's the sentence. You see the revolving circle of glory moving from like to like. And he goes on, the sun is glorified by the spirit. The Father is glorified by the Son. Again, the Son has his glory from the Father and the only begotten thus becomes the glory of the Spirit. For with what shall the Father be glorified but with the true glory of the Son? And with what again shall the Son be glorified but with the majesty of the Spirit? In like manner, again, faith completes the circle and glorifies the Son by means of the Spirit and the Father by means of the Son. So our faith completes the circle of glory that is intrinsic in the Godhead. He concludes, I've been quoting Gregory, such then is the greatness of the Spirit. Whatever is morally beautiful, whatever is good coming from God as it does through the Son is completed by the instrumentality of the Spirit who works all and in all. So we, i.e. the church, uh, we complete the divine circle of glory. And our faith is not our faith, it's actually expedited by the Holy Spirit. We are participating in the glory that's going on within the Godhead. And we are participating on behalf of all creation. Uh, concluding thought, um, it's pretty obvious from this why Gregory was the most famous universalist theologian in history because his, his theological landscape was not just vast, but was de um, defined really by this circle of glory image. 
Um, you, can, you can see where his, 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 his theology must naturally go because salvation is not a one-way rescue, but a participation, participation in divine life. And that, and that life itself is a necessary outflow from the life of God naturally giving, but naturally returning to himself. And that outflow is infinitely giving and there can be no boundary or stopping point to it. There's not, no possible boundary or stopping point in this life-giving movement. So um, that's the circle of glory. There's a, there's a lot in it, and um, you can certainly download the article and read it. Um, I've put a lot of thought, not just into summarising it, but to understanding this conceptual, um, the conceptual foundations of his argument. And um, uh, I hope it blesses you as much as it did me.